certainly have fears that there is a serial killer at loose in Perth. Sarah Spears, Jane Rimmer, Kira Glennon. And every time you saw a young girl walking by, you think, oh God, is she going to be the next victim? Now, one man stands accused. If police are right and Edwards is the Claremont serial killer, he's been hiding in plain sight for 20 years. Today, court heard about a young woman's terrifying night out in Claremont prior to Sarah Spears' disappearance. And later, the trial heads to the UK with a world-leading fibre expert claiming ignorance led to lost evidence. Hi everyone, welcome to day 80 of Claremont in Conversation. It's after 7pm here in Perth and court has just wrapped up. Natalie Bonjolo, Tim Clark and Damien Cripps with you tonight. So Tim, the day started unexpectedly really with a witness who recalled how a night out in Claremont uh, almost ended with her jumping out of a moving car. Yeah, that's right, Nat. Um, so we heard a lot of this type of evidence many, many, many months ago, but um, we did a quick flashback today um, in in terms of we weren't expecting it, um, but, it, but there it was, just presented um, sort of out of the blue a little bit. The context being that this is a witness that the prosecution called, but um, they called that, that witness on behalf of the defence. It was a request from the defence side, please can you call this witness because we want to cross-examine her. But it, if, if not for that request, it, it, she wouldn't have been called at all. But um, uh, that's that's part of the process. And uh, and so um, up she came. Her name was Rebecca Kimi. Um, and as you said, Nat, back in 95, she was a young 20-year-old girl, just uh, or young woman, living around the corner from Claremont. And as we've discussed many, many times, she was one of the many, many young women and young men who frequented the night um, spots of Claremont, um, Continental Hotel and Club Bayview being the uh, optimum ones. And she sat in court and described a very disturbing um, incident which happened to her um, when she was walking home and and was offered a lift by a man in a white car, um, which uh, turned uh, quite nasty very quickly. And... What um, what happened in the car? You know, she said that she had was was very frightened. What happened to make her so scared? Well, yeah. So she described how she uh, initially was engaged by this 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 driver, this man. He offered her a lift. Um, she refused initially, then got in, um, was driving her off, and drove off quite quickly. Um, and uh, very quickly, she became uncomfortable um, because. Basically, the man wasn't talking to her when she was trying to engage him in conversation. This was very early one Saturday morning, I must add, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning. Um, and then this gentleman, as she described it, started grabbing her leg. Um, she pushed him away. He persisted. She pushed him away again. And then, as you said, right off the top, Matt, she was very frightened at that point and described how she uh, implored him to... Um, turned down a certain street, which not was not the destination she was headed for, um, basically because she didn't want him driving so fast because she was seriously considering jumping out of the car um, to get away from him. He eventually did stop. She did exit very quickly, then hid, um, and awaiting um, his departure, which which eventually came. Um, but she, she remembered the incident very clearly, obviously, because she was very clear in her evidence today. And uh, most importantly, I suppose, remembered a description of the man and a description of the car, which um, we'd, we, the, the, certainly the car was very different to the car that we've, or the cars that we've heard about in particular. I mean, although it was a white station wagon, but it was a different style of station wagon, smaller, a Japanese style car. She, 
which he described as very old, rusty, dirty, um, and the and the and the, the bloke driving was um, older than her, but not much older. Olive skin, dark hair, over the collar, um, and skinny and and scruffy in appearance, mm. which obviously differs um, in 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 several significant respects to um, the description um, or well how Mr. Edwards looked, what the what car he drove um, at the time this happened. So, Damien, I guess. Um we can look at maybe what the obvious reasons as to why Mr Jovic may have asked the prosecution to call up this witness. And I guess they're pointing to the possibility that someone other than Mr Edwards had picked up young women walking home from a night out in Claremont. Well, I think that that's exactly right, Nat. I think that one of the things that um, arises to my mind in this circumstance is that if you were a person making a decision about all of this evidence that everybody's heard, and um, what we're being directed to try to deliberate on, if you were the defence, one of the things that you would try to, the message you would try to get across to the person making that decision is there was lots of people who were doing this kind of thing in the 90s. I mean, it it, it seems to me, to my mind, only after the turn of, after 2000, that that we really started to say, you know what, hitchhiking is not really a good idea. Mm. So, so back then, I, I would have thought, and that's the that's the defence's message that lots of people were giving people lifts, and lots of people were taking them. Yeah, that's right. And is it unusual for defence to ask prosecution to call a witness that they hadn't called themselves? I, I think that I'm confident to say now it's not unusual for the defence to do anything. <laughs> right. if, 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 well, I mean, if, if you put yourself in the defence's position, if you're sitting there thinking to yourself. Um, you know, this is important. Um, it's not necessarily something that we would normally do or the rules potentially have been set up to allow us to do. But if, you, if you're if you a de- defence lawyer, um, or, well, for that matter, even a prosecution um, uh, lawyer, you would certainly ask the question. And, and obviously that's what's happened here and it's, and it's gone ahead. So um, it, it's, it is a bit unusual because the practice would generally lend itself to... Um, to the, the prosecution calling all the witnesses um, and, and that being part of their case. But in, an, in a case where the defence know of a witness um, that has been um, spoken to about something and, and, and they would have been provided a statement um, on the prosecution brief, so they would have had some insight into what this person um, had to say about that time and what had happened to them, if they thought that it could be beneficial to their um, case, you'd certainly ask the question. So I'm just curious, on the flip side of that, um, I guess the prosecution hasn't called this witness for a reason. And Tim, do you, uh, I mean, do you speculate that that's because the description of the person who picked her up didn't match Mr Edwards? Well, that, I mean, that's what you'd have to speculate, um, given the description that she gave, uh, and particularly the car. The car was the one, she was quite clear, it was a small space wagon, there was no Telstra logo on it, it was a Japanese style car because she, the only types of car she knew, knew were Ford and Holden, so, and she knew it wasn't one of those, so it was a Japanese style car, and that really didn't fit into the narrative that the mm. prosecution tried to present all those months ago, and the so-called Telstra living witness um, part portion of the trial, where everyone was 
quite clear that it was a white station wagon. Some of them even saw it off the logo on the site. So that's what you've got to speculate. Why they didn't? Why did they didn't call that witness? And as Damien said, all those witnesses. I mean, she, so she said in her evidence, she reported to this police um, after Sarah went missing, um, and so that. Obviously, police report was obviously on file, and, and then she was questioned about it over several years, several times, and all that all that material would have been on the prosecution brief, which would have been handed to the defence before the trial, and the defence then looks at that and says, well, hold on, that doesn't really fit, yeah. um, and then she doesn't get called, and so it's within the prosecution's remit to, to say to the prosecution, we want to question her, you might not want to, but we do, um, and, and then it's... It's up to the prosecution, whether, I suppose, whether they argue that, Damien, but in this case they haven't. Um, and then there was another witness that came straight after, which was in the same in, in the same boat. So, um, so yeah, as I say, it was a bit of a greatest hit today because yeah. we had the we had the Telstra living witnesses, and then with this next witness that I just mentioned, we had the uh, we had the privacy screens back up. So um, yeah, we were we we were, were reliving all our all our finest moments in, the, in a couple of hours at the start <laughs> today. And you obviously had the uh, partitions had to be erected again, and this was because you were mm. taken back to Wellard and the discovery mm. of. Jane's body. Yes, that's right. So a forensic officer who was at um, Jane's scene, um, uh, Greg Menard, his name was, um, and actually did touch Jane's body um, in terms of when it when it was shifted out of where it, where it was laying for all those days when it was on the road, and then it was moved again onto the sheet under the direction of Dr. Karen Margolis, the pathologist. Mr. Menard was one of those four people that, for, that helped with that movement. Um, but what um, particularly that the prosecution um, well, well, maybe didn't want him to, to, to have to recount, but the defence did, was his, um, his scene in the video, the scene video in particular, not wearing gloves. Um, and at, at one particular point, he has handed some vegetation um, by one of the other officers to put into a, uh, a, a paper bag um, some of the vegetation that was on top of Jones' body. And he then ashes that vegetation into the bag, not wearing any gloves. And then later on in the video, one of his senior officers actually asks him directly, are you wearing gloves? He answers no, and then he's instructed to put them on. And so that was the bulk of the questions that Mr. Yovich wanted to ask him about. Um, and presumably, again, reading between the lines, trying to cast forward a little bit, crystal ball stuff, that will point to, well, look, um, you might say that you're trying to do everything you could possibly could not to contaminate, but there you have a an officer, senior officer, um, forensic officer, senior enough to be at the scene of one of the, you know, the, the most high-profile murder in Perth, um, handling potential exhibits without gloves. Um, so there it was. He answered the questions, um, and um, he wasn't on there for long. But um, the, the the point was 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 very much made while he was there. And it was very interesting because he was asked also by Mr. Jovic if he had um, if he had touched the body, and he had said he had no reason to touch the body. But of course, then you've watched this, or you couldn't see the video, but then you hear in this video, um, well, isn't that you there touching the body? Mm. And now the the reason <laughs> to put that into context, the reason he was there, he was a fingerprint officer. And he had been called to the scene potentially to be able to take the fingerprints from Jane to identify her, help identify her, and then obviously potentially any other evidence that might be there. When he said he, he was shown the body, Jane's body, it said he, he said it became very clear to him very quickly that he wasn't going to be needed for that purpose because basically of the decomposition of Jane's body. 
So in, it was in that context he was asked, um, did you touch the body? And he said, well, no, I had no reason to because um, my primary role was being there. It became evident to me I was pretty much redundant because I wasn't going to be needed for that role. But then, as you said, later on, he was employed as part of this four-person team that was that, that, that basically rolled Jane over onto the sheet when they took her out of where she'd been in situ. So I, 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 you can't really read into that that he was trying to obfuscate or trying to mislead or, or even trying to misremember. I, I, I generally think there was a question that was asked in context and he answered it. Right. And then he showed another piece of video and he said, well, yes, that, that is me. I did touch the body and I, ha- and I do hate to add he had the gloves on by the time that he did handle Jane's body. So, um, so yeah, it was, um, it was quick. It was forthright. Um, and, um, and yeah, and then we moved on, um, as you say, overseas to, um, to my, to my native, my native land where <laughs> Dr. Palmer was the main, was the main um, witness of the day. And Miss Barbagallo asked for his opinion on how well WA Police did in their attempts to preserve or collect trace evidence. Uh, what did he say to that? Yeah, so this is Dr Ray Palmer. This is the forensic expert, a world-leading fibre expert and the prosecution's expert in this fibre expert in this case. Um, a very important witness because, as I, as I mentioned earlier in the weekend last week, he is the man who has been asked by the prosecution to bring all this Long, um, longitudinal and long-winded at times fibre evidence together and bring some conclusions, and that's what he started to do today. But one of the first conclusions or one of the first comments he made, you would think he might have been working for the defence because <laughs> he was he was pretty critical of the of of the the way that Jane and Kira's um, scenes were done and then postmortems were done, and this was on the back of him being sent all this sensitive material. As part of the prosecution team to be to to view it, and so and that is what he's done. And he said very early in his evidence that um, that there were there was very probably um, very significant forensic evidence lost in the processes that were employed at the time. Now he, again, he didn't say this was deliberate or anything, or or, or, or really it, it, he he said the word ignorance, but it was ignorance in the word in, in the in the in the context of not realising the possible potential forensic sources, particularly in the hair of both women, but also on their hands and and the, and the like. And and he said that from what he saw on the video, particularly con- concerning Jane, and some of the things were done. He he was of no doubt that there were there would have been forensic opportunities and potential evidence lost in the way that um, the the. Jane's body in particular was handled. Right. I mean, I guess, Damien, we've discussed this before with the DNA. This is someone uh, looking at 1990s footage through the eyes of modern forensic glasses. Absolutely. And and, and so even though um, it sounds to me the way Tim has described it, that he was um, critical of the practices, I'm, I'm sure that his view is has... Um, progressed since his view would have been back then as well. So, I mean, that's one of those things where everything's a little bit subjective, even when you're trying to be objective. So he could be sitting here today with the knowledge of all the the, um, processes that we have in practice now, looking back and and being quite critical of that, um, the, the way it was done back then. But what would be quite interesting is, is, was it his view, and perhaps, Tim, this was addressed, in his view, 
was he operating at a different level at that stage or was he just being critical <laughs> of how it was done at the time? Well, he certainly, and he was very expressly said this, David, that this, this wasn't just a Western Australian issue back in 1996 and 1997. He says he's studied cases, been consulted in cases, been involved in cases at that time and then reviewed them and the same sort of primitive practices, I suppose, in terms of today's um, forensic knowledge were employed in, in various jurisdictions on both sides of the planet. So this, this wasn't a, a particular critique of Western Australian police at that time. He said this, this was just how it was done at that time, but that doesn't negate the fact that in this particular case, things could have been done differently or if they had been done differently then there might have been more evidence to sift through whether it be in in the immediate years after the, the, those examinations or in all the preceding years that, that that were to come yeah and i think what what's really important about um experts if we call them experts um tim and that is that um i think a lot of people have the perception that if the prosecution calls an expert then that expert can be swayed to say what the prosecution want. Or if the defence call an expert, that that expert could be swayed to say what the um, the defence pr would prefer them to say. But as we know, with experts, the, the preferred experts are the ones that will come along and just say what they actually believe as part of their expertise. And I think that there's a general consensus amongst the public that if the prosecution calls an expert, they're going to come along and say what the prosecution want them to say. Well, that's not generally the case. I mean, as um, it seems like we've heard here, this um, this witness was more than happy to come along and, and, and be critical of the way things were done back then. And if, if we take that a little bit further, um, it might seem that that would be beneficial to the defence case because it might raise an argument for the defence that given this expert has said that the um, practices weren't ideal, um, that that might work in the, the defence's favour. But as I'm listening now to Tim explaining it, um, it, it doesn't necessarily do that because it, it puts a, uh, a sphere across the globe on how practices were being done back then. And therefore, we shouldn't be too critical of the, the WA team that were working on it at this stage because this is what was happening across the world. And I guess, Tim, does it, did it go towards um, explaining why at times there were a lack of uh, critical fibres, which was highlighted by the defence team? Well, absolutely, Matt. So I suppose in that way you could see a, a Dr Palmer or the prosecution turning a negative into a positive because as his um, evidence progressed, and so a lot of it was... Um, research-based, so Dr Palmer was giving a broad outline of all the research that surrounds fibre evidence and its collection, its transference, its significance, um, and that's what experts are there to do because they are expert enough to talk to that. But then what they have to do is, 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 is hone in on the particular case and use that expertise and that research and those studies to highlight a particular aspect of a particular case, and that's what Dr Palmer did. And when they got to the fact that there were certain fibres, for instance, that were part of the makeup of the Telstra pants and they didn't appear in the car and on Kira and on Jane, 
Dr. Palmer was then able to point to, well, look, uh, there were things done back in 1996. Um, for instance, Jane's hair was washed in a sink um, and those washings weren't collected. They literally went down the sink. They were, they were, there was debris that came out of Jane's hair that went onto a green sheet and that sheet was literally shaken onto the floor. Um, they were, they were just two examples that he'd taken from the post-mortem video. Um, and then he was able to later then to point to that and say, well, look, perhaps if things had been done differently, we might have found those rayon fibres or those, those other type of fibres, or we certainly might have found more of the fibres that we did find. The, the word that really stuck out was from, from the latter part of Dr. Palmer's evidence was he said his opinion, his expert opinion was that the fibres, the critical fibres that we've gone through were a remnant. They were, they were what was left after everything that had happened, particularly the, the bodies being out in the open for so long, 55 days in Jane's case, 19 days in Kira's case. Then how they were processed, moved and, and then examined um, and then the hair was stored, as we know, frozen um, in both cases for a long, long time. And he said, after all that, this is what was left. But this, he said, is an opinion. He would be very surprised if these were the only fibres that, that were deposited on the two women um, um, at the time of the commission of the, of the alleged offences. Yeah, that's very that's interesting. His, that's his critical evidence because, yeah. that, 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 I mean, in... in in all of the evidence that it seems like he's given, there's very little that is of any use to the person making the decision because he's talking about things that are not there. So the only the decision can only be made on the evidence that is before the court. So, but that final point that you raise is the critical part because he he gives evidence. The key part is, um, in his expert opinion, that it's possible that remnants have are missing because of this. So, so, so that that would be the one key factor from my from my point of view that that could uh, could assist someone in making a decision. So, of the critical ninety eight fibres that were left behind, that he um, looked at the database and he's looked at the video and and looked at all of that information. Did he agree with Reese Powell's conclusion that these critical fibres were corresponding? Well, that's uh, that's an interesting question because we we questioned the the use of the term corresponding, and Dr. Palmer himself said he wouldn't have used that word. Oh. <laughs> he would have used the word indistinguishable, which as a as a bloke who makes his living out of words, indistinguishable is a lot stronger to me than corresponding. Indistinguishable means you can't distinguish from one thing to, from another. Um, and, and that is how he said he would have described all these fibres that we've talked about, all these 98 fibres. Um, and then, as I say, bringing it all into context, he talked about the combination of fibres, i.e. there wasn't just a grey, there wasn't just grey, there were blue. And there wasn't just blue, there were light grey and dark grey polypropylene. And there wasn't just that. And they were all combinations. When you look at it as a whole, his conclusion, and I, I, I think, Damon, this is probably allied to the, the point he's made about the remnants being his key part of his evidence. His conclusions from all that 
were that if Jane and Kira had not been inside that vehicle, the Holden Commodore, 1BPX080 was the registration number, if they hadn't been in there, he would not expect to see those combination of fibres on either of those women. So that is a pretty strong statement for a pretty strong expert to make, to say the combination of those fibres is the critical thing in that you would not expect to see that combination anywhere else unless you had been in that car. And that is what, again, I seem to have said this phrase so many times over the journey of this trial. What are the chances? And Dr. Palmer literally did say that. What are the chances that those fibres, all those fibres, the blue, the grey, the the, the ones from the pants and the ones from the car, basically, what are the chances that those two sets of fibres would be on those women if they hadn't been in that car? And he said the chances were remote. And he based that on some expert research, these studies that I talk about, because experts in this field do these type of studies. Um, the, 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 the chances of a fibre being replicated and they go to cinema seats and they go to high traffic areas, public transport, and they take tapings and they have one target fibre in mind, whatever it might be, blue polyester in this case probably. And then they try and find that fibre in all these different places and in various, in most of the studies, they never find this, this, this target fibre um, just at random. And so using that expert, using those studies, he was able, then able to bring it back to the case and say, what are the chances that you would find that target fibre? Um, just looking in the random population, very, very low. And then on top of that, what are the chances that two women would have that those target fibres on them? Probably even lower again. Mm. Was he also asked about the fibres relating to the Karaketa rape victim? Well, uh, yes, of course. Um, and I have to say that 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 woman was in back in court today to listen to this evidence. Um, we hadn't seen her for a while, but she did she did come to listen to this portion of the trial. And what he said, and that's a different this is a different context, obviously, because yes. we know Mr. Edwards has admitted this. And what he said of that was, well, if a person that used to work for Telstra did, in this case, we know violently attack this young woman and her shorts were left behind at the crime scene, he said he would expect to see that, those fibres on that piece of clothing, given his work history and then the violent history, brief although it was, um, with that that young lady. Mm, Very interesting. Damien, do you think, um, as as you're talking about this being an expert, um, it does sound like it's very strong evidence? It's strong in the context of the fibres. Um, and and that, as we've discussed all the way through um, the trial, that the difficulty with, with this is it's one element of a combination of things. And, and I certainly appreciate that the fibres have bec- become a very significant element in this trial. Um, so the answer to your question is I think that it, in my view, remembering that I'm not in court, I'm getting the information the same as the listeners are. In, in my view, this witness was very important to the prosecution because he tied up some of, mm. well, uh, now I shouldn't say tied up because 
he attempted to tie up, let me put it that way, he attempted to tie up some of the loose ends. So in doing that, what he's done is tries to cut off the defence at the pass in saying, we anticipate that what the defence will say potentially in their closing is that um, there was fibres that were not found. So this expert says, well, that's something that I would expect. And, and, and so in the context of this fibre evidence, he becomes a significant um, factor that the court can consider when they're making their final determination. So, yeah, you can see why they've gone to the lengths they have to get this witness um, to give evidence. Yeah, and I guess in that same vein of cutting off the defence at the pass, was Dr Palmer also then questioned about um, fibre cross-contamination? Because we would expect that the defence would go there. Yes, he was a little bit now. It was a brief section, but um, it was there. Um, so Dr Palmer had been given, because he hasn't actually been able to come to Perth um, physically, um, he is relying on all the information being, being given to him, um, obviously. Um, and, and part of that information was the Chem Centre providing him with all their um, protocols and standards and everything they try and do and do do to try and prevent any contamination whatsoever. Um, he stressed, as every scientist, I think, in this trial has stressed, you can never say never. It's, yeah. it's, it's impossible to rule it out 100%. But what he did say was, on, on all the knowledge, all the information he's been given about all the practices, both general um, and particular in this case, in terms of um, never inspecting the victim and the, and the suspect uh, material together, the time and, 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 and geographical distance between some of the exhibits, the fact that a lot of the critical fibres from the girl's hair were found many, many years before the, the car was, was impounded. Um, and then the pants came into um, the, the equation as well. So the, the chances of contamination there were very, very slim. Um, so uh, he was he was going on everything he's been told, obviously, and he, he gave the, the scientific the scientist's caveat that you never say never but he said again he would find it um, unlikely or remote that um, that any of these fibers could have come into um, uh, into evidence via some contaminant source mm. I'm sure we'll hear more on that down the track. We have. I'm sure we will. Yeah. <laughs> one question before we go from Corin. It's quite a long one, so stick with me here. If the defence fails to prove reasonable doubt in relation to the DNA found under Ms Glennon's fingernail, which I understand they failed to do, is this alone not enough for Justice Hall to decide upon a guilty verdict for the accused in Ms Glennon's case? I understand that the defence proved that contamination is, of course, possible and did occur in other areas of this case, but they failed to successfully provide evidence of an opportunity for how the DNA of the accused could have contaminated Ms Glennon's fingernail. Therefore, we are left with the fact that the DNA of the accused, or DNA that is a very high chance of being from the accused as opposed to any other person, was found under the fingernail of one of the victims with no reasonable doubt presented. How then could the verdict for the crime against Ms Glennon not find the accused guilty, regardless of all the other circumstantial and fibre evidence that's also been put forward? Well, it's a good question, Corin, and you should be commended on the amount of thought that you've put into that. Um, I do see, just from my point of view, I do see um, some 
mental gymnastics going on <laughs> in that question. Yes. And, I'll say that, and I'll say that with respect because this is the problem the legal system presents to people is that you, you, staying on top of which side, you, which side you're flipping to and, and how you're going to approach the question. I think the most important approach to that question is um, you started out your question by saying if the defence fails to prove reasonable doubt. The first thing to say about that is that the, the defence are not obligated to prove reasonable doubt. The reasonable doubt is something that has to arise in the mind of the person or the jury or the, the judiciary. So I'm not sure whether I'm that comfortable with mm. canvassing the question that way because the very basic principle is that the prosecution have to prove beyond reasonable doubt. So it's not for the defence to um, disprove yes. or prove reasonable doubt. So it's, it's a bit of a difficult concept, but I certainly understand the concept that Corin's talking about. So I, I think that the, the best way to answer that is that if in your mind, Corin, you're satisfied that the um, the DNA from Miss Glennon's fingernail is not contaminated. That's the best way to that, that's the best way to approach it. Don't worry about whether the defence approved anything. Just in your mind, if you're satisfied that um, the DNA is not contaminated, well then you you are satisfied that the prosecution have proved that beyond a reasonable doubt. So, it, it, and, and in doing that, then the, the question goes on. Is that the point when um, the judiciary can decide um, whether the accused person is guilty in relation to Miss Glennon's case? I, I think that that is certainly a strong element to, towards that. And, and I'm not saying that I'm convinced that, that that's the, the point of view. What I'm saying is that it, it seems from your question that you've already formed that the view that you're satisfied that um, the DNA wasn't cross-contaminated. And, and would that be enough to, to be satisfied beyond a reasonable, reasonable doubt that um, in relation to Miss Glennon's case, that the judiciary could find the accused guilty? My answer to that is, and remember, I'm just a lowly defence lawyer, my, my answer to that is no, because I think you need to give the same amount of um, attention you've, you, you've applied to that. You need to apply to all those other things you've raised in, at the end of your question, the circumstantial and the fibre evidence. They're, they're all things that have to be considered in conjunction with your consideration about the DNA under, DNA under um, Miss Glennon's fingernails. So the answer to my question, the answer to your question from me, and I can't speak for everyone, and I know lawyers always do that, but um, in trying to help you with the mental gymnastics of this, the starting point is have the prosecution prove something beyond a reasonable doubt. And if you are satisfied in your mind that they have, turn your mind to the next question. What's the next question, okay, in, in relation to Ms Glennon's case? And if you can go along through all the questions, you're confident that the prosecution have proved beyond a reasonable doubt. And, and it gets you to a, a, a verdict of guilty. That's the way to think about it. Has the defence um, disproved something? I'm not sure that disproved is the way to approach it. I think that has the prosecution proved beyond reasonable doubts? Has have the defence put anything in the way of those um, of of you proving that? It, it's mental gymnastics all the time, and that's why all through this. Um, podcast and I think across the state and possibly across Australia, people have um, been mindful of, of the job that this uh, this judge has ahead of him um, because there's so many things, there's so many elements you have to consider in conjunction before you can get to avert appropriately. 
Sorry for the long-winded answer. No, <laughs> no that's, that's, well, if it comes to mental gymnastics, then obviously Justice Stephen Hall is an Olympian at that. So <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> this is why he is sitting where he is at this time. Um, so another late sitting tomorrow to accommodate Dr Palmer in the UK. Do you expect, Tim, that we could have some more living witnesses prior to him? We're not sure, that We're not sure. We think we are going to get some live witnesses, at least, as well as Dr Palmer on the video. But, um, but no, we weren't given any um, idea um, who they're going to be. So I'm going to, have to leave the uh, listeners in, in suspense <laughs> there a little bit and, um, and hope they'll trust us enough to... Um, to come back and um, and see what the uh, see what the, the, the next day brings, but it will be, bring more of Dr Palmer's evidence certainly, um, and um, there's a little bit to go with that. Um, one last thing, one last interesting point that I'll leave everyone with: we actually found out today who the defence fibre expert is going to be, um, and that was done in 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 the introduction to Dr Palmer's evidence and given all the information that he'd been given. And the, the last bit of that information was a, was a report from the other side, if you, if you want to call it that. Um, and it turns out that um, the defence um, expert fibre witness is someone very well known to Dr Palmer, someone he's worked with at the Forensic Science Services in the UK for many, many years. Um, so it'll... <laughs> If I was going to be a little tabloid about it, I was going, you know, I was going to be expert versus expert, you know, friends <laughs> versus friends, um, that that type of thing. But it's an important point to raise that we haven't heard any of the defence um, direct evidence yet, um, but that will certainly be um, a significant part of it. What their fibre expert, the conclusions they bring to all this direct evidence to come um, from the Chem Centre. So, um, and uh, as we know, scientific minds can diverge in very different paths um, in terms of conclusions. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what the, what, what the, um, what the second opinion, I suppose, if you want to put, put it that way, um, that, that to, to come on, on this, on this fibre evidence, which, which we've, we've, um, we've studied for so long now. That will be very yeah, Tim interesting. And just, Tim and Nat, just before we go, Tim had the opportunity to have one last say, and I'd like to take that opportunity myself. <laughs> yeah, ne- never get, never get, never. We didn't never say this is a democracy. No, no, I understand. So I'd like the opportunity to re-examine, if I could put it that way. Um, one of the things that occurs to me when I'm um, just considering Corin's question, and, and 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 I'm sure the listeners will shake their head when I say this. And I probably say it because I think that it's something that people should consider because a, a lot of this trial has been about the legal system. A lot of this trial is about the process and people who um, are interested in the process have, as we've experienced, have taken them on board and, and, and listened to the podcast and sent questions in and everything. And one of the things that I think is really important to raise as we get to um, a point where potentially we're, the prosecution case is coming to an end, if... When the the judge delivers his um, reasons for um, whatever he finds in relation to all of the cases, the reason why these things take so long and and the reason the trials take so long and the reason the process is sometimes so laborious is because everybody is trying to protect themselves against that magnificent thing, Tim, and that called an appeal. Yes. Mm, Yes. And and so every time you're thinking to yourself, oh, this, this looks like a path that, somebody could go down and it would seem like it 
could go quite quickly down that path. What people, what the parties are all trying to do is make sure that they tick, um, tick every box and make sure that they're, they're protecting themselves against um, if the matter comes for appeal. So, um, for instance, um, it, it occurs to me if the defence fails to prove reasonable doubt, if the judge said something like that in his reasons... Just one simple miswording in his reasons, that may be, I'm not saying it is, but that may be a reason for appeal. So that, that, that this is why the mental gymnastics are so important all the time, because um, obviously with a case with such a high profile and such high stakes for everybody, um, everybody knows that just around the corner is if, if um, the defence is successful, the prosecution will consider an appeal. And if the um, prosecution is successful, vice versa. So, I mean, potentially, this has a long road to travel. And that is the final word. <laughs> thank you both so much for your time. I know it is so very late, so much appreciated. And thank you for joining us. We'll be back tomorrow with Tim and forensic scientist Brendan Chapman for day 81 of Claremont in Conversation. This podcast is hosted by Natalie Bongiolo, produced by Kate Ryan and recorded in the studios of Seven West Media. Sign up for daily emails and all the latest on the Claremont trial at thewest.com.au. And if local news delivered differently appeals to you, tune into WA's newest morning show, The West Live with Jenna Clark. It's talkback radio, but without the interruptions. Listen live weekdays from 8.45am on thewest.com.au or catch up with the podcast.